Great Feasts of the Bible. This is number three in a series of three. The Harvest Feast. In Revelation 15, 2 and 3, we read, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Let us pray. Our loving Father, which art in heaven, in this study, we pray that thou wilt grant us the ability to comprehend the great final victory celebration in which each of us can personally participate in the feast of the harvest. We ask this in his blessed name. Amen. We have come to the third and final subject of this series, on the three great feast days of the Bible that was instituted by God for his people that we might understand more fully the great plan of salvation. As we begin, let us take a moment to briefly review the first two feasts. The Passover feast was the first that was intended to reveal in miniature the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The second feast day was called Pentecost, which was to reveal the crucified Christ would be resurrected and pledge that all who died in the faith of the atoning sacrifice for their sins would be resurrected to eternal life when Jesus comes the second time. And such individuals would become members of the family of God forever. Such wonderful news of this blessed assurance brings us to the third feast, which is called the Feast of the Harvest. This feast was to portray the glorious celebration that will soon take place when the wedding between Christ and his church is finally consummated. So, let us begin now by reading God's instructions concerning this feast of the harvest. You'll find it in Leviticus 23, 39 to 43. In the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, 
branches of palm trees and the boughs of thick trees and the willow of the brook and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days and ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year it shall be a statue forever in your generation ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month ye shall dwell in booths seven days now Ellen White explains this feast for us as follows in Patriarchs and Prophets page 541 the Feast of the Tabernacles was not only commemorative but typical it not only pointed back to the wilderness sojourn but as the Feast of the Harvest it celebrated the ingathering of the fruits of the earth and pointed forward to the great day of final ingathering when the Lord of the harvest shall send forth his reapers to gather the tares together in bundles for the fire and to gather the wheat into his garner. At that time, the wicked will all be destroyed. They will become as though they had not been. Obadiah 16. And every voice in the whole universe will unite in joyful praise to God, says the revelator. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 5.13 Now in order to comprehend how this feast will affect you and me, we must understand the preparations being made which began the moment the Christian church was born. Immediately Christ commanded, as you read in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. But in order to obey this challenging command, a divine power was needed by his church so that he could shake the world. Don't forget, God never gives a command without providing the power. In Acts of the Apostle, page 39, we read, The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. Pentecost provided the church with a power so that it could give the gospel to the whole world in one generation. Acts of the Apostles, page 593. 
The commission that Christ gave to the disciples, they fulfilled. As these messengers of the cross went forth to proclaim the gospel, there was such a revelation of the glory of God as had never before been witnessed by mortal man. By the cooperation of the divine spirit, the apostles did a work that shook the world. To every nation was the gospel carried in a single generation. Imagine unlearned men becoming mighty in the truth as their lives became hid with Christ so that they were anointed with divine power and could speak fluently their mother tongue. But more. In Acts of the Apostles 40 we read, they could now proclaim the truth of the gospel abroad, speaking with accuracy the languages of those for whom they were laboring. This miraculous gift was a strong evidence to the world that their commission bore the signet of heaven. From this time forth, the language of the disciples was pure, simple, and accurate. Whether they spoke in their native tongue or in a foreign language. Beloved, this is going to happen again during the loud cry when Pentecost will be repeated with even greater power. I'm reading from Bible Commentary 6, page 1055. Ellen White says, It is with earnest longing that I look forward to the time when the events of the day of Pentecost shall be repeated with even greater power than on that occasion. John says, I saw another angel come from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Then, as at the Pentecostal season, the people will hear the truth spoken to them, every man in his own tongue. Praise God, there are wonderful things soon to happen. God can breathe new life into every soul that sincerely desires to serve him and can touch the lips with a live coal from off the altar and cause them to become eloquent with his praise. Thousands of voices will be imbued with the power to speak forth the wonderful truths of God's word. And listen to this. The stammering tongue will be unloosened and the timid will be made strong to bear courageous testimony to the truth. May the Lord help his people to cleanse the soul temple from every defilement and to maintain such a close connection with him that they may be partakers of the latter rain when it shall be poured out. Review and Herald, July 20, 1886. I feel 
just like praising the Lord when I read these things. Just think what God has planned for his faithful remnant. Those humble disciples at Pentecost <clears throat> became submerged in the depths of God's love. They positively believed that their Savior was alive and that he alone possessed the keys of hell and death. This gospel of a crucified and risen Savior electrified their daily behavior. Jehovah was their God. His honor, their honor. His trust, their trust. God anointed such surrender with a heavenly anointing which made it possible for them to preach the gospel to the entire world in one generation. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 43, we find the result. Priests and rulers trembled. Did you get that? Conviction and anguish seized the people. They were pricked in their heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? The traditions and the superstitions of the priests were swept away from their minds and the teachings of the Savior were accepted. Divine prophecy portrayed step by step the outcome as outlined in the seven seals of Revelation. The newborn Christian church is described in this chapter from Pentecost to the final harvest. So let's read chapter 6 of Revelation, beginning with verse 2. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering to conquer. Now notice a white horse revealing the purity of the gospel maintained by men who knew by personal experience. For they could say, as I read in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. So, for some 69 years from A.D. 31 to 100 A.D., the Christian church went forth conquering to conquer. We continue reading verse 4. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Did you notice the change from white to red during the next 223 years? 
Here we see the mystery of iniquity infiltrating the Christian church in its infancy. Thus its purity, represented by white, slowly changes to the color of red as a union of church and state gradually comes into being. And now let's read verse 5 and 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now you will notice the identifying color is black, portraying the depth of apostasy that has taken place because the papacy has taken control from 325 to 538, supplanting the truth of God. We must appreciate the candid admission of Cardinal Newman in his book, The Development of Christian Doctrine, in which he notes the origin of the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Listen carefully. Confiding then in the power of Christianity to resist the infection of evil and to transmute the very instruments and appendages of demon worship to an evangelical use, the rulers of the church were prepared to adopt, to imitate, or sanction and the existing rites and customs of the populace as well as the philosophy of the educated class. We are told by Eusebius and Constantine in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. The use of temples and these dedicated to particular saints and ornamented on occasion with branches of trees, incense, lamps, and candles, votive offerings on recovery from illness, holy water, asylums, holy days and seasons, use of calendars, processions, blessings on the field, sacerdotal vestments, the tonsure, the shaving of the head, the ring in marriage, turning to the east, images at a later date, perhaps the ecclesiastical chant, are all of pagan origin. Did you notice that? Are all of pagan origin 
and sanctified by their adoption into the church. Page 371 to 373. I continue reading Revelation 6, 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now we see pictured that period called the Dark Ages, a time period from 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D in which time a literal hell took place in the greatest persecution of God's saints, which is portrayed in the next verse. I'm reading 9 and 10. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This brings us now to the sixth seal. As it is opened, we suddenly become aware that it is the time frame of the end of the world which has begun. Revelation six twelve and 13. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Now look carefully with me at this time sequence. A great earthquake takes place, which is called the Lisbon earthquake, and it happened on November 1, 1755. This was the mightiest earthquake ever recorded. Next, there was to be a dark day, this happened on May 17, 1780. That very night the moon was to appear as blood, and history verifies this fact. And finally, there was to be a falling of the stars, which took place on November 13, 1833. Listen, friend. This all happened less than 175 years ago. Surely, we are living in the very end of the end time events. And what was to come next? The greatest event of all ages, the second coming of Christ. I'm reading Revelation 6, 14 to 17. And the heaven 
departed as a scroll when it was rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondsman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Surely we can see the nearness of the end. Now as we watch the seventh seal open, we learn of heaven's exact timetable. Revelation 8.1 And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Please consider with me this time prophecy. A day equals one year in prophetic time. This is an undisputed rule of scripture. And a day contains 24 hours. So one hour represents about 15 days. But the scripture states about one half hour, which would be about seven days. The time frame which God gave for the feast of the harvest that was also to last seven days. So you can easily see that both the Old and the New Testament have revealed the coming event of Christ's second coming, which will require about seven days in time. For we read in Revelation that Christ's coming is likened to his coming again on a white horse. Remember? It began with a white horse and it will end with a white horse. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he shall smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and Lord of Lords. 
Now let us recap. Remember, there was to be silence in heaven. Revelation 8, 1, about the space of half an hour. Or, reckoned in time prophecy as about seven literal days. Why is this silence in heaven? Because Christ is coming in the clouds of heaven with all his angels to gather his saints. The great harvest of the redeemed. During this great event, heaven will be empty for about seven days as was typified by the feast of the harvest. <clears throat> in this harvest process, the angels will gather together the remnant saints who are living and the resurrected saints who have been liberated from Satan's prison house of death, making possible a glorious celebration of the final harvest feast. Seven days by God for this occasion. Remember Leviticus twenty-three thirty-nine: Ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. Remember we read in Patriarchs and Prophets page 541 the feast of the harvest it celebrated the ingathering of the fruits of the earth and pointed forward to the great day of final ingathering when the Lord of the harvest shall send forth his reapers to gather the tares together in bundles for the fire and to gather the wheat into his garner. In this celebration the whole universe will unite and participate here we must pause to consider a very personal question. Do we plan to participate in this coming event? If so, there are some serious preparations that you and I must make now. For probation is ended a short time before the appearing of the Lord in the clouds of heaven. Great Controversy, page 49. When this moment arrives, we have been told in Revelation 22, 11 and 12, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And what is taking place on the earth? Great Controversy, page 491. The righteous and the wicked will still be living upon the earth in their mortal state. Men will be planting and building, eating and drinking, all unconscious that the final, irrevocable decision 
has been pronounced in the sanctuary above. Before the flood, after Noah entered the ark, God shut him in and shut the ungodly out. But for seven days the people, not knowing their doom was fixed, continued their careless, pleasure-loving life and mocked the warnings of impending judgment. So, says the Savior, shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Unquote. Is it any wonder that God warns in Mark 13:36, Watch ye therefore, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping? In Great Controversy 491 I read, Perilous is the condition of those who, growing weary of their watch, turn to the attractions of the world. While the man of business is absorbed in the pursuit of gain, while the pleasure lover is seeking indulgence, while the daughter of fashion is arranging her ornaments, it may be in that hour the judge of all earth will pronounce the sentence, Thou art weight in the balances and art found wanting. But thank God, he has unmasks Satan's final move. In early writings, page 43, Satan is now using every device in this sealing time to keep the minds of God's people from present truth and to cause them to waver. I saw a covering that God was drawing over his people to protect them in the time of trouble. And every soul that was decided on the truth and was pure in heart was to be covered with the covering of the Almighty. Satan knew this, and he was at work in mighty power to keep the minds of the people as he possibly could, wavering and unsettled on the truth. It is brought to our attention that Satan in desperation will attempt to produce a great false revival among the people of God. In early writings, page 43, I saw that Satan was working through agents in a number of ways. He was at work through ministers who have rejected the truth and are given over to strong delusions to believe a lie that they might be damned. While they were preaching or praying, some would fall prostrate and helpless, not by the power of the Holy Ghost, but by the power of Satan breathed upon these agents and through them to the people. While preaching, praying, or conversing, some professed Adventists who had rejected present truth used mesmerism to gain adherence, and the people would rejoice 
in this influence, for they thought it was the Holy Ghost, unquote. And beloved, we see this happening in the churches of Babylon today. But how sad to learn that this false revival will take place in some of our Adventist churches also. In early writings, page 44, I saw that Satan was at work in these ways to distract, deceive, and draw away God's people. Just now in the sealing time, I saw some who were not standing stiffly for present truth. Their knees were trembling and their feet sliding because they were not firmly planted on the truth and the covering of the Almighty God could not be drawn over them while they were thus trembling. In order to protect ourselves during this time, we must be covered by God with his covering we are told that this covering of the Almighty consists in two garments, the righteousness of justification which is imputed and the righteousness of sanctification which is imparted. If we are to participate in the wedding activities, each of us must put on this wedding garment. Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints and he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. God calls this experience to his saints the sealing process, in which, under the power of the latter rain, the daily struggle to overcome sin will finally be realized and our characters will become like Christ. We will be sealed and enrobed in Christ's righteousness, making it possible for the angels to separate the wheat from the tares. Then the angels will gather the sealed saints to the wedding with their Savior, to be united with Christ for eternity. When this has happened, the greatest harvest celebration will be held throughout the universe of God. It will be an explosion that will boggle the mind. Let your mind imagine what this tremendous occasion will be like when we meet loved ones again who have been separated from us for years as they were taken by death. What a meeting! Never more to part again! 
talk about excitement as we visit with our guardian angel and learn of the many times he has saved us from the power of destroying angels. Can you conceive of sitting down with Bible characters like Peter, Father Abraham, David, Moses, and Noah, and listening to their thrilling stories of their salvation? Imagine visiting personally with Adam and Eve. Talk about wonders. Beholding a city 375 miles square with streets of pure gold and little children spreading their wings to fly to the top of the transparent walls. Can you conceive of what it will be like to be transformed into new bodies with eternal vigor of youth, never again to experience sickness, pain, or death? Can you hear the heavenly music of angelic choirs as they sing praises to the Lamb of God? Have you ever fathomed the thrill that it will be to eat of the immortal tree of life and to drink from the river of life flowing out from the very throne of God? Talk about excitement when you suddenly realize you live in heaven where there is no more sin and never again to be tempted by Satan. Have you ever dreamed of what it will be like to reach out and take the hand of Jesus, the Son of God, and to see and to feel the marks of the crucifixion and to look into that face of love and be invited to sit with him on his throne? How will you react as God the Father invites you to spend a Sabbath with him? Listen, friend, you will never, never cease to praise his holy name. Listen to his invitation once again to attend this celebration. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Let us pray. Dear God, cover us now with the covering of thy righteousness that we may be protected in the coming time of trouble because we have gained victory through thy power, sealed and ready to experience this great harvest feast celebration and to live forever with thee. Amen.
Tell me.